I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 31st, 2011, Reformation Day. Yep, too busy uh, recognizing uh, Reformation Day and enjoying rediscovering the rediscovery of the gospel to <clears throat> get involved in that thing called Halloween. I, I really don't care for Halloween at all. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and all of that kind of proves that the ongoing work of Reformation in the church will really continue until Christ returns. And the reason for that is this, is that everybody, every human being, is born dead in trespasses and sins. And I saw stats today that said that the seventh, the seven billionth person uh, was uh, born somewhere in the Philippines today, and so um, you know, you, you look at that, and you know, and what what do I say? I say, well, that means there's seven billion little deities running around on the planet. That seems to be the problem. Is is that um, we, by nature, because of our corrupted, sinful nature, do not love God. We uh, no, we're, we are born at war with Him. We want Him dead. Uh, we want to be gods ourselves. As a result of it. When we look at corrupted, corrupt, sinful human beings, uh, the uh, behavior that we should expect from corrupt, sinful human beings is this. Um, aside from the obvious, like, you know, sins against the second table in the Ten Commandments, second table would be that table that deals with our relationships with each other horizontally. And so the idea is is that you've got the do not steal, do not murder, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery, don't covet, things of that nature. Uh, those, those all deal with our relationships to each other. And many times when people think about sin, they almost exclusively think about sin in regards to the second table of the law. But the reality is, is that 
the the thing that plagues us the most is our sin against the first table. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment really is the commandment from which all the others are broken. Um, and so the reason why we sin is because we do not love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And that is by nature. And Christians still have their sinful nature to deal with. And so here's the idea is, is that over and again throughout the church's history, you see periods where um, large segments of the church all at once, it seems like, uh, decide that they're going to abandon God's word and chase after their own subjective doctrines, their own subjective theologies, rather than have their minds transformed and renewed uh, by what Scripture teaches. When you approach Scripture, you approach Scripture with the idea of, um, God, you are the one in control here. My my mind, my reason comes in subjection to God's Word. It does not stand over God's Word. And so what happens is, is that over and again, you see periods of, in the church's history where uh, the church wholesale goes the wrong direction, chases after um, bad theologies, uh, popular concepts, and over and over again, it finds itself in a ditch. And that's what happened at the time of Martin Luther, is, is that medieval Roman Catholicism in Europe, uh, you know, as, as I think partly because of the fact that they kept the Bible locked up in Latin, and the common ordinary people were not hearing the saving message of Christ and Him crucified for our sins. That uh, what happened is, is that much uh, it's very similar to what you see happening in uh, in Israel uh, prior to the uh, the the reign of King Josiah. Now, if you're familiar, I'm kind of on a tangent here. Work with me here as I tangent my tangent. Um, hopefully I won't get tangential, at least too tangential. But here's the idea, is that uh, prior to the reign of King Josiah, you'll find this in the Old Testament. Look it up in, in your Bible if you're not sure what the story is about. But there was a, a king just prior to the Babylonian exile who, um, who, who you know, they were doing a, a, a renovation of uh, Solomon's temple, you know, you know, Solomon's temple had existed for you know for quite a while. As a result of it, it was in need of some refurbishment. And you find out that what had happened in the history of Israel is that, I mean, Solomon's temple, which began as a temple to the one true God, where the sacrifices that were instituted by Moses in the tabernacle got transferred over to the temple. And what happened is, is that as Israel slipped farther and farther and farther and deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry, they ended up bringing those idols into uh, the Temple of Solomon itself. And uh, so what, you, I mean, I think there was an Asherah in there. You got, you know, you, you, yeah, it, it was a mess. And so Josiah, King Josiah, you know, this is a, 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 a guy who the scriptures say was a man after uh, God's heart, or at least in the same, you know, who, who followed in the footsteps of his father, David. And, uh, and so the idea there is, is that they found the book of the law inside the temple. They read it and they realized, oh, we're in trouble. And this guy went on a reform. Uh, a reform movement like you wouldn't believe. He had the false idols ripped out of the uh, the temple there in in uh, Jerusalem, and uh, and there was a cleansing that w that occurred. Now the the Reformation, uh, when we look at the Protestant Reformation, is very similar to that concept. Medieval Roman Catholicism, um, because of their lack of hearing God's word, 
uh, began chasing after and following false doctrine and false theology, and things were brought into the church itself that uh, were as idolatrous as an Asherah pole. They were as idolatrous as bringing, uh, you know, Baal into the temple itself. And so uh, the Reformation was about uh, not starting Christianity over again. Not at all. Because uh, keep in mind, Jesus Christ himself promised that he would be with us always and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So uh, there, there have, from the beginning of the church until the Reformation and from the Reformation today, there have been people who have trusted in Christ and what he's done on the cross for them for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation. That you know, you can say that clearly. And the idea there is is that the Reformation didn't go back and restart Christianity. The Reformation doesn't teach what Mormonism teaches, that uh, that Christianity ceased to exist after the apostles. No, they'll say Christianity has existed through the millennia. And uh, But the problem is, is that there was a, a, pr- a very strong period of apostasy in uh, medieval European Roman Catholicism. Uh, with the ascendancy of the Pope, with the with the Bible being locked up in Latin, the people not hearing it in their own language, which is silly. It doesn't make any sense that that would be the case because, um, I mean, Acts chapter 2, if there is any chapter in the Bible that would show that God wants people to hear the good news of Christ and Him crucified for our sins in their own native languages, uh, Acts chapter 2 would be that. But they weren't hearing the gospel in their own language as a result of it, mythologies, False doctrines, false theologies crept into the church, and so the idea behind the Reformation was kind of like a spring cleaning, if you would, uh, going through and doing what Josiah did, getting rid of the uh, the idols, getting rid of the false doctrine, and pairing it back and bringing the church back in line with what the church has historically believed, taught, and confessed, and having God's word, not the speculations of popes and priests uh, be the thing that dictates what is uh, to be taught in, and, uh, and done in God's church, but letting the scriptures dictate what is to be taught and uh, done in God's church. And so that was the idea behind the Reformation. So today is Reformation Day, and so what we're going to do here at Fighting for the Faith, we're going to start off with a little bit of, of fun. And what I mean by that is is that you know this is, yeah, this is like one of my favorite days of the year, and it has absolutely like nothing to do with Halloween. I don't particularly care for kids coming to my house and you know begging me for candy. I don't particularly care for that. Um, but I really do, really do care about um, recognizing historically the importance of the Reformation. And so what we're going to do, we're going to start off with a couple of fun little songs. Uh, the first is the Reformation Polka, and the other one is one I've never heard until today. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a song about Martin Luther sung to the, the, the Bengals uh, song, Manic Monday. So uh, let the festivities begin. Let's, uh, let's start off with a little bit of uh, Reformation Polka. Here we go. Then I was just a younger man, I studied canon law. Though Erfurt was a challenge, it was just to please my paw. Then came a storm, the lightning struck, I called upon St. Anne. I shaved my head, I took my vows in Augustinian. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. The papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. 
When Tetzel came near with converse St. Peter's prophet's sword So I wrote a little message For the all saints bulletin board You cannot purchase merit For we're justified by grace Here's 95 more reasons Brother Tetzel in your face Oh, papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. They love my tracks, adored my with all were exemplar or. The Pope, however, hauled me up before the Emperor. Are these your books? Do you recant? King Charles did demand. I will not change my diet, sir. God help me, here I stand. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Frederick took the wise approach, responding to my words. My knighting George is hostage in the kingdom of the birds. Use Brother Martin's model if the languages you seek. Stay locked inside a castle with your Hebrew and your Greek. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Let's raise our steins and concord books together in this place and spread the word that Catholic is spelled with lowercase. The word remains unfettered when the spirit gets a chance. So come on, Katie, drop your loot and join us in our dance. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Speak your mind against them and face excommunication. Nail your theses to the door, let's start a reformation. With papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. Papal bulls, indulgences, and transubstantiation. All right, that's uh, Papal Bulls, Indulgences, Transubstantiation from the Reformation Polka and for a Reformation Twin Spin. Here is a group called History Teachers. You can find them at YouTube.com, and they're teaching regarding Martin Luther using the Bengals tune Manic Monday. Here we go. It's starting to feel like a DJ.
So there you go. The uh, Martin Luther song to uh, the Bengals' Manic Monday tune uh, for our Reformation twin spin here today. Yeah, like I said, I'm feel Yeah, that's from the uh, Reformation Groove Yard of Forgotten Tunes. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder um, how it is not illegal for me to do what I do for a living. Anyway... <laughs> Moving along, I, I'm just going to dive into the program. We'll talk about what we're going to talk about later in the program, but uh, we'll, we're going to kind of ease into a story here that I want to cover from the uh, Christian Post. Mm -mm 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 -mm. The uh, headline reads, uh, Family Radio founder Harold Camping repents, apologizes for false teachings. Now, I thought that the uh, Harold Camping news was done um, but uh, I, I saw this uh, late, you know, late in the day yesterday, and uh, so this is a story by Nicola Menzi. And uh, let me read this, and we'll kind of figure out what to, what to make of this. Nicola writes, she says, With his speech sounding somewhat slurred and labored, family radio station founder and chairman, chairman Harold Camping sought to address in a recent message why Christ failed to return on October 21st as the Bible teacher had predicted camping confessed after decades of falsely misleading his followers that he was wrong and regrets his misdeeds. Now, this this is a positive sign here. Now, um, I've, I, I tweeted this. Um, boy, do I hate that word. I tweeted this story out yesterday and also included it in a Facebook status. And I had several people contact me who uh, who used to be camping followers. And one of the things they, they cautioned me about, like immediately, was that I shouldn't jump to the conclusion that this automatically means that all of the false doctrine that camping's been teaching over the decades is what he's repenting of. So, uh, you know, because in particular, uh, camping's theology has drifted into something that sounds a lot like uh, Jehovah's Witness type Arian theology with a belief that uh, Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel and things like that. So uh, they cautioned me to not not completely give him a pass at this point due to the fact that uh, his false prophecies are really, you know, part of an entire package of false doctrine that he's taught. So uh, I, I, I'm just passing that information along to you from people that have contacted me who are former campingites, if you would. So, uh, so the, okay, so he regrets uh, his misdeeds. The story continues. In addition to attempting to correct his erroneous teachings on the rapture and God's uh, day of final judgment on the world camping, who's 90, also confessed, quote, incidentally, that he was wrong to claim that God had stopped saving people after May 21st, the date which God's so-called spiritual judgment had begun. This is undoubtedly a radical shift for Camping, who has staunchly claimed since 1992 that he had discovered a special numerical system in the Bible that allowed him to calculate the exact dates of certain events, such as the Great Flood, the Crucifixion, and the day of Jesus Christ's return to earth. Camping first falsely predicted that the world would end on September 6, 1994, and then again on May 21, 2011, and finally on October 21st. When Camping's final doomsday prediction failed to come to pass, Family Radio soon removed its, uh, its teaching regarding the failed May 21st rapture, which also include 
the the claim that God had stopped saving people after that date and that the world was headed for a final judgment on October 21st. On October 24th, 2011, the Christian Post also reported in an exclusive interview with a member of Camping's Bible Ministry that the Alameda, California Bible teacher was no longer able to lead Family Radio or his ministry. A transcript of the audio published to Family Radio's website on October 28th, 2011 is below. Now, rather than uh, read to you the transcript of uh, what this audio message from Camping says, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play this for you. So uh, here's Harold Camping in a just published on the Family Radio website audio snippet explaining what's going on with him and his repentance. Listen in. We are living in a day when one problem follows another. And when it comes to trying to recognize the truth of prophecy, we're finding that it is very, very difficult. Why didn't Christ return on October 21? It seems embarrassing for family radio, but God was in charge of everything. We came to that conclusion after quite careful study of the Bible. He allowed everything to happen the way it did, without correction. He could have stopped everything if he had wanted to. I am very encouraged by letters that I have received and are receiving at this time concerning this matter. Amongst other things, I have been checking my own notes more carefully than ever. And I do find that, that there is other language in the Bible that we still have to look at very carefully and will impinge upon this question very definitely. And uh, we should be very patient about this matter. At least in a minimum way, we are learning to walk more and more humble before God. We're ready to cry out and weep before God, O oh Lord, you have the truth, we don't have it. You have the truth. And, and this is another place where we have to cry out for this. There's one thing that we must remember. God is in charge of this whole business, and we are not. Okay, now I'm going to pause right there and just kind of interject. Now, as encouraging as the headline read from uh, the Christian Post about him repenting and being sorry, um, yes and no, as I'm listening to him this language that he's using still sounds like he's trying to hedge things. It's almost like he's trying to hide behind the uh, the the attribute of God known as the uh, sovereignty of God. God was in control. He was in charge. And he had his reasons why he didn't have Jesus come back on the days that we predicted. So, it, yes, there's been a change of tune and I would really hope that uh, what we would see from the Harold Camping and Family Radio at this point is uh, basically uh, rolling back the tape back to the uh, 80s and the early 90s and going, wait a second, because that's really where things jump the tracks with these guys and um and reevaluating christian doctrine in light of um of of you know what was taught earlier at family radio as opposed to later uh because along with harold camping's system of 
uh, of coming up with a formula predicting the end of the world. There also came stuff and doctrines, allegoric, uh, the allegorization, allegor, the allegorization. Yeah, that's just funny. Anyway, the, the allegorization of the Bible and uh, and basically bringing in really foreign teaching and doctrine. Now, at, at, we covered this fact that uh, early in Camping's career, he was in the Reformed camp, but uh, was later disciplined for his false teaching. And so if we're going to see real repentance from uh, Harold Camping regarding his false doctrine, uh, I would say every erroneous teaching that is not in accord with the historic Christian faith must be reevaluated in light of Scripture at this point. Because it's not just that he predicted the end of the world, it's that there's other stuff that he's been saying regarding what the Bible teaches that cannot square with sound doctrine. We continue. What God wants to tell us is his business. When he wants to tell it is his business. In the meanwhile, God is allowing us to continue to cry to him for mercy. Oh my, how we need his mercy and continue to wait on him. God has not left us. God is still God. But we have to be very careful that we don't dictate to God what he should do. In our search in the Bible, we must continue to look to the Bible, look to the Bible, because there is where truth comes from. And God in his own timetable and in his own purposes, will reveal truth to us when it's his time to do it. In any case, we do not have to have a feeling of calamity or a feeling that God has abandoned us. We are simply learning, and sometimes it's painful to learn We are learning how God brings his messages to mankind. And my, my, we have claimed to be a child of God. And therefore, we, as we search the Bible, we're bound to feel the darts of the Lord as sometimes he gives us the truth and sometimes he gives us something that causes us to wait further upon him. Whatever we do, we must not feel for a moment that we have been abandoned by God, that he is no longer helping us. Or That's right. You weren't abandoned by God. You were deceived by a false teacher. Big difference. Arrested in us. Oh, my, what an encouragement it is to be able to go to the Lord again and again. Oh, Lord, I don't know anything. Lord, you teach me. And that's the attitude that has to be part of each one of us. And God will not abandon us. He will provide. But we have to be just very careful that we don't dictate to him when that has to happen. Incidentally, I have been told that I had said back in May that... People who did not believe that May 21 should be the rapture date probably had not become saved. I should not have said that, and I apologize for that. One thing we know for certain, that God is merciful. Merciful beyond anything that we would ever expect. 
And so we can pray constantly and should be praying constantly, O Lord, we look to Thee for Thy mercy, and we're so thankful that we know that Thou art so merciful. How wonderful to know that God is still on the throne, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that He hears every one of our prayers. And let's not hesitate. Let's be if anything, let's be, be pray more than ever for God's mercy and keep praying and God will provide, but God is in charge and we must always keep that in mind. Okay, so that's Harold Camping's message that was posted uh, just this past weekend on the Family Radio site. Yes, there's some encouraging things there. And at this point... Um, I think family radio needs to, at this point, you know, obviously I'm glad to hear that Harold Camping will no longer, will, uh, he will no longer be able to um, teach um, and he has resigned um, and retired. Um, and at the same time, they've got to worry about, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of fallout from uh, this admission that he was wrong, that he was teaching things he ought not to teach. Yeah, in a situation like that, um, yeah, um, if they're really concerned that folks get sound biblical doctrine and are taught the truth, I, I think at this point, um, any of the teachers there that are left at Family Radio, their doctrine needs to be examined in light of the historic Christian faith. And, um, and, and, and anybody whose uh, teaching is in accord with something that's far more ancient than 1980 uh, probably shouldn't be allowed to teach on the radio there uh, with basically the idea that they're they're still influenced by camping's false doctrines that he's taught over the decades. So, uh, you know, at this point, they you know, they've got, you know, you've got an admission and a confession that, you know, that he was wrong. Um, you see, you, you hear some contrition there. Um, but at the same time, there was some hedging going on. So, um, yeah, I, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with family radio in the days ahead. But if they really, at this point, are cons- truly, truly concerned about the truth being taught, um, they need to take a long, hard look at all of uh, Camping's teachings and the influence that he's had and the very peculiar doctrines that they've embraced over the decades as a result of his wrong way of looking at the Bible and uh, have a reformation, if you would, a complete cleaning of the house, and uh, and go back to what the church has believed, taught, and confessed uh, from its beginning. I think that would be the right thing to do. All right, so we are up on our uh, first break. If you would, um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So, can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, uh, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Mm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G R A T E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P R O L P R O A B L U M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Lander by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, no, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, it's 1 o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, The one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. 
Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, 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 what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Huh? <laughs> yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes. I found it. It's here. Got it. Yes, here we are. Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, your wait, wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, when a false teacher repents of their false doctrine, always make sure they're repenting of all of it, not just some of it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website. The website address is fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see the two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the page. The one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you're joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do for the rest of the program today. I've got two new stories that I want to cover. Uh, one is a story coming out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, regarding the uh, fallen fighter that died at uh, 
Guts Church. Apparently, the family of that uh, young man is going to be suing Guts Church. My question is, are there criminal charges pending? Um, and then there's a, a, one other piece I wanted to take a look at. It was a post that was put up at the Grace to You blog entitled The Elephant in the Elephant Room that I think is just well done. It, uh, Travis Allen, who is the director of Internet Ministry at Grace to You, is the one who wrote this. And, and it's talking about, well, you, you'll see what I'm talking about, The Elephant in the Elephant Room. We're going to get to that. And, uh, and then what we're going to do in hour number two, uh, we're going to do an encore uh, broadcasting of uh, two lectures by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Uh, one is entitled uh, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, and the other is the sequel to that entitled Christianity in Five Verses. Why are we doing this? These are timeless messages. Today's Reformation Day, and, and Dr. Rosenblatt, um, in both of these lectures, uh, or sermons, lectures, well, I don't even know what you want to call them, um, preaches the gospel so powerfully and so poignantly that um, it, it behooves us to not play them. This this might become a, like a Reformation Day classic here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. But so that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two. So you know, I just can't bring myself to play a you know a review a bad sermon on Reformation Day here at Fighting for the Faith. It seems like it's a, for lack of a better way of putting it, against my religion. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, you know, it sounded funny before I actually said it. In my head, I thought it was actually pretty clever. But then I realized after saying it, yeah, it didn't work. Anyway, uh, so the, uh, the two stories that I want to cover. The first is the family of fallen fighter takes Guts Church to court. Uh, this is from the uh, website uh, krmg.com. KRMG is a uh, local television station or a lo no local news station there in uh, – in uh, sorry, news talk radio station in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, um, before I play that, though, before I play it, there's nothing to play. Before I read it, I would like to remind you of something that Bill Shear said that we covered back in October of 2008. Here's Bill Shear. And I and I know some of you guys are raised that we're always sinners, even if we, even when we give our life to God. I'm not a sinner. If you'll ask me, you'll say, "Hey, Shear, are you a sinner?" No. And I'll tell you quite simply why I'm not a sinner is because the Bible says God doesn't hear the sinner. Well, I'm telling you, God hears me. And you know what he does? He responds to my requests. Man, he, he, takes, he sits up on that throne and takes notice when I put a demand on his will. Yeah, so there's uh, Bill Shear uh, you know, basically uh, claiming that he's not a sinner. Uh, I would basically uh, use this story as objective proof that that claim is false. Um, so the headline reads, Family of Fallen Fighter Takes Guts Church to Court. Tulsa, Oklahoma, the family of George Klinkscale, the former University of Tulsa football player killed after competing in a non-sanctioned boxing match at Tulsa's Guts Church has filed a civil suit. Court documents indicate that the suit seeks more than 75000 in actual damages as well as punitive damages and court costs. In addition to Guts Church, the lawsuit also names Bill Shear and Sandra Shear, the church's direct directors, as co-defendants. Klinkscale was on the main event card at Guts Church's Fight Night 6 on September 21st. He reportedly began cramping during his bout 
and was rushed to the hospital but couldn't be revived. He was 24. The lawsuit claims that Guts and Shears negligently promoted, organized, and held a boxing match that was not licensed by the state's licensing authority. It says the defendants have negligently promoted illegal and extremely dangerous underground boxing operations and held fights on the premises of Guts Church on at least six occasions. The defendant knew uh, or should have known that all of the fights held during these events and or promotions were in violation of state law. It goes on to say that Klinkscale was seriously injured during the boxing match and that those injuries directed uh, directly resulted in his death. Further allegations. There was no physician present, a violation of state regulations. The matches were televised without licensing in violation of state regulations. The defendants acted as both promoters and matchmakers for the matches in violation of state regulations. The referee was not appointed or approved by the Oklahoma Boxing Commission. The referee didn't stop the bout when it was clear that such a bout should have been stopped. The announcers were not licensed by the Oklahoma Boxing Commission. It goes on to list even more alleged violations, including the failure to administer drug or alcohol testing. Quote, as a result of defendant's negligence and willful and wanton negligence, Clinksdale was severely injured and such injuries direct, directly caused his death, it reads. It claims that the alleged conduct of the defendants constituted gross negligence and or willful and wanton conduct and total disregard for the safety and welfare of not only uh, the deceased but also other participants and or fighters all for the all for the direct and or indirect monetary gain of the defendants. Uh, KRMG attempted to contact Guts Church in the Shears for comment, but all of our calls were not returned. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty big list here. Um, no physician was present, which is a violation of state regulations. And I, and I know some of you guys are raised that we're always sinners, even if, even when we give our life to God. I'm not a sinner. Okay. And then we got matches were televised. Uh, without licensing, which is in violation of state regulations. If you'll ask me, you'll say, hey, Shear, are you a sinner? No. And I'll tell you quite simply why I'm not a sinner is because the Bible says God doesn't hear the sinner. Well, I'm telling you, God hears me. Okay. So, um, and then the defendant acted as both promoter and matchmaker. The referee was not appointed or approved by the Oklahoma Boxing Commission. The referee didn't stop the bout when it was clear that such a bout should have been stopped, and the announcers were not licensed by the Oklahoma Boxing Commission. I'm not a sinner. If you'll ask me, you'll say, hey, Shear, are you a sinner? No. And I'll tell you quite simply why I'm not a sinner is because the Bible says God doesn't hear the sinner. Okay, so, you know, my question here is theological at this point. Um, in, in light of the fact that um, Guts Church held an illegal boxing match that resulted in the death of a young man, and there was all of these major violations of state law regarding boxing, um, can he look any of us dead in the face and seriously expect us to believe that he's not a sinner? Yeah, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. But, that, I mean, that would be my question for him. I mean, if I, if I were to allowed to ask... Uh, Bill Shear, one thing, 
one thing, uh, and he had to answer me. You know, if I was in some kind of a press pool or something, and and he you know pointed to me and and asked what my question was, I'd basically say, "You claim that you're not a sinner. You still believe that? That's what I want to know because I think it's pretty clear that he is. And this is another example of a false teacher doing bad things. And uh, by the way, uh, it, the the worst part of this story is not the fact that uh, Clinksdale died. Okay. That's the the reality of the matter is is that the worst part of this is is that Bill Shear because he's a word faith heretic who teaches things like he's not a sinner. Um, the 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 worst part about it is is that the when the folks at Guts Church die, um, there's they are in serious danger of the fires of hell. He, this is a man who is a false teacher who is sending folks to hell. So not only is he killing them physically. Uh, illegally with his illegal boxing matches, he's sending him to hell by the false doctrine and the false gospel that he preaches. Um, so yeah, is he a sinner? You bet your bippy he is. And um, you know, so uh, pray for the folks there that are deceived by Bill Shear, and pray that God uses this event to uh, to open people's eyes and uh, maybe even uh, cause Bill Shear to lose credibility to the point where. He no longer is able to deceive people. That would be really nice. All right, from the Grace to You blog, the headline reads, The Elephant in the Elephant Room. This was published on Friday, October 28, 2011, and it was written uh, by Travis Allen, the Director of Internet Ministry there at Grace to You. And uh, this is a fantastic article. One of the more recent entries to the conservative Christian conference lineup is The Elephant Room. The brainchild of James McDonald. The idea was to bring Christian leaders together for some brotherly sparring over an elephant in the room issue. Uh, Pleased with the results from the first conference in March of 2011, they prepared for the second in January 2012. The elephant room round two is being promoted like a prize fight. Your ringside seat awaits, and you know the rules. No wavering, no sidestepping, no excuses. Uh, James McDonald recently lit up the uh, blogosphere when he invited T.D. Jakes to join ER2. He Does he really intend to extend the boundaries of Christian brotherhood to a well-known anti-Trinitarian modalist prosperity preacher? McDonald received a fair bit of well-deserved criticism, and rather than rethinking it as his decision, he dug in his heels and defended it. He doesn't think Jakes is still a modalist. Jakes is still a coming to uh, ER2. Stir up a little controversy and you get instant publicity and free promotion. You gotta admit it's kind of clever. Anyway, I, I've much appreciated the thoughtful criticism posted by Thabiti Anabwile, Carl Truman, and Phil Johnson. At some point, you should read these posts. They're very instructive on many levels. But I'd like to go back to round one of the Elephant Room and the video Mark Driscoll posted on his website. That particular session was about the place of culture in the church, specifically asking whether or not it was a good idea for Perry Noble to open his 2010 Easter service with ACDC's blasphemous song, Highway to Hell. No, I'm not kidding. Evidently, that's how Perry and his peeps engaged the culture. When pressed, Noble justified his decision with an overt and unashamed appeal to pragmatism. He said, quote, we had a guy come up to us several months later, and he had received Christ. And he said that in that song is where he felt God speak with him and tell him that's the highway that you're on. And so people have asked, does the end justify the means? I don't know. Ask the guy in heaven. I think he's probably going to say yes. 
To their credit, McDonald and others felt Noble had gone too far in engaging the culture. As McDonald voiced his disagreement, Noble claimed biblical precedent for what he did. What do you do in Acts chapter 17 when Paul quotes uh, uh, two uh, secular rock songs when he's uh, reaching the Athenians? What do you do in Matthew chapter 2 when uh, God uses astrology, he probably meant astronomy, right, to reach the wise men? I, I mean, how can we say those methods were not effective? God meets people where they are and brings them to where he is. That's why we do what we do. Let's set aside Noble's sophomoric understanding of Acts 17 and Matthew 2 for a moment. Actually, Travis, I would say that's the sophomore would be like too high. Uh, That was more like a junior high. That's like a seventh grade understanding of Acts 17 and Matthew 2. Matthew 2, I think a sophomore, at least somebody who is doing well in school at the sophomore level of high school could see through that. Anyway, says McDonald was undaunted in his criticism, recognizing the clear contradiction of taking something that is blatantly offensive to the gospel and the cross and then bringing it into the center of the church. Spot on and well said. And then Noble asked McDonald a critically important question. Does God's word directly contradict what we did? That was a good question. In fact, that is the question we should all ask about our life and ministry. What does the Bible say? Would God approve or condemn what I think, say, and do? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. God is the final authority. Only his opinion matters. But Noble didn't get a direct, clear-cut answer. In fact, the message loud and clear was, Well, we can agree to disagree on this. Some of the men expressed strong disagreement. Opinions I agree with completely, but unfortunately, James McDonald just as strongly affirmed Noble's prerogative to do what he did without fear of condemnation. That was less than helpful. We have Driscoll to thank uh, for not letting it go. He brought it up again and In a way, McDonald couldn't avoid, remember, no sidestepping. He asked, do you think it was a sin against God? Just to remind you, Noble played a song that scoffs at divine judgment and revels in rebellion in the worship service of a church that purportedly belongs to Jesus Christ. Not only does he say God used that song, but that God approved of them using that song. At the end of the day, the church leaders in the room were clearly reticent to say that what Perry Noble did was sinful. In fact, at the 42-minute, 51-second uh, mark, James McDonald summed it up by saying, I definitely don't think it was sinful for him to do that. Look, I, I'm no one special, but I just can't let that go. That's terribly misleading to allow people to come away from that video believing what you do in a worship service is simply a matter of preference. There are preference issues, but we can never think they don't matter in the eyes of Christ, the sovereign head of the church. James McDonald has positioned himself as a mentor to these young pastors. Two of them asked the senior pastor in the room, was that wrong? Was it sinful? Love demands a better answer than they received. Mentoring them demands speaking the truth, not your opinion in love. I'll go on the record as saying I think what Perry Noble did was a sin. It doesn't have to do with his motives. God knows and judges motives, not me. See 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. 
It has to do with what he did and what he intentionally planned and performed in a worship service. As long as, by the way, it's not just any old worship service. It was Easter Sunday. Okay. So, I mean, now I would say that if, you know, every Sunday is the Lord's Day. No, no question that. However, many people would argue that Easter and Christmas are like high holy days in Christianity, and for, and for good reason. So this wasn't just a this wasn't an everyday kind of sermon or service. This was the day in which the church recognizes Jesus Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave. Okay. And so, I mean, that's the day he chose to play this song. But anyway, I continue. It says, as long as Noble calls his gathering of people a church, he's professing it to be an assembly of the saints of God, a gathering of God's people who come to exalt the holy and living God by expounding his holy and living word. Nothing unholy or unfitting belongs in that service. On what grounds do I say that it was sinful? Go back to the incident with Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 reads, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So what was the sin of Nadab and Abihu? Answer, they offered strange fire. Strange as in alien or foreign. And I I think it's intentional that the Holy Spirit didn't get more specific in describing or delineating or defining what was strange about it. Whatever it was... And this is the principle the Spirit intends for us. The fire was strange. It didn't belong. It wasn't fitting or appropriate. Nadab and Abihu died because they made a bad judgment call in their ministry. They were innovative rather than submissive. And by so doing, they publicly diminished the holiness and separateness and otherness of God. And that was sinful. Perry Noble committed the same sin as Nadab and Abihu. He offered strange fire in his service to the Lord. I couldn't say it any better than MacDonald did. Noble took, quote, something that is blatantly offensive to the gospel and the cross and brought it into the center of the church. Has anyone else committed that sin? Well, certainly none of us is without fault. But when we learn of our sin and error, it's up to us to repent, confessing what we did as sin and striving never to do that again. Will Noble repent? Well, from what I saw in the video, he didn't seem to be in a listening frame of mind. He was all about justifying himself, even bragging about his profane decision. And even if he were inclined toward repentance, I think it would be difficult to be confronted and find your way to a humble and contrite spirit while several video cameras are capturing your every expression for a live audience. Perhaps that perhaps that's an argument against the elephant room as the best venue for hammering out these kinds of issues. 
The Elephant Room session was full of swagger and bravado and the epitome of hipster coolness. But the biggest elephant in the room on that day was the failure to fear God, the failure to speak with conviction when his word is so clear. While watching that video, I couldn't help but remember the prophetic words of David Wells in God in the Wasteland, that, quote, God now rests too inconsequentially upon the church. Wells continues saying, quote, If God is at the center of worship, one has to wonder why there is so much surrounding the center that is superfluous to true worship, indeed counterproductive to it. Whenever the clear voice of God in his word is blunted or diminished, whether by ignorance or neglect, God will rest too inconsequentially upon the church. I fear that we're becoming a generation that's doing church in a way that is counterproductive to true worship. And I'm concerned it's because we don't fear God as we should. And we're being becoming accustomed to doing what is right in our own eyes. Isaiah writes in chapter 8 verse 20, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Great post by Travis Allen. I think he gets right to the heart of the matter. And what a great contribution to the church that blog post was. Thank you, uh, Travis, for discussing the elephant in the elephant room. Was it sinful to uh, play ACDC's Highway to Hell to open Easter service? Absolutely. ACDC in the song Highway to Hell, that's the equivalent of bringing strange fire into the midst of the congregation. And keep in mind, Jesus himself is clear. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there. You think Jesus wants to hear and revel in highway to hell? Where two or more are gathered in his name? His name was profaned for sure as a result of it. And I'm thankful for Travis Allen for this great article. Okay, we are up on our second break, and we come back. We're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be playing encore editions of Dr. Rosenblatt's lectures. The first one entitled "The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church," and the second entitled "Christianity in Five Verses." So you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, hour number two, we are back. Encore broadcast of two fantastic lectures that nail the gospel. Oh, I can't think of anything better to listen to today than to these. Thinking, yeah, I've already heard. Yeah, if you if you haven't heard them, you're going to be blown away. If you have heard them, listen to them again. You'll be blown away. The, the depth is really amazing. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons are actually two lectures delivered by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. The second, though, actually is a chapel sermon, if you would. The first one, though, is entitled, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Have you found yourself starving as a sheep in church? Feeling like you're just being beaten by God's law, withering under its effects. Yeah, then this uh, lecture is going to be fantastic for you. The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. It's presented by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, and this was uh, originally presented a few years ago and uh, presented at a South Orange County outreach event. And uh, it, this is in our normal rotation here at Fighting for the Faith, and not P- Fighting for the Faith, but Pirate Christian Radio. Um, this is a, a program, a, a lecture that from time to time we broadcast on the radio, even though we've broadcasted before, because people need to hear this. And every single time we play this, there are people who go, what was that? So uh, without any further ado, let's, uh, let me kill the music here. Here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and the gospel for those broken by the church. Here we go. Thank you very much. This evening I want to address a particular problem. What a Christian might be able to say in conversation with people who see themselves as alumni of the Christian faith. And of course I'm not referring to those who've been translated by death from what Christians call the church militant into the church triumphant. I mean people we meet or know who say that they once believed that Christ and his shed blood freely justified them before God, God freely forgave all of their sin, freely gave them eternal life, but who add that they no longer believe these things. It seems to me that in the four Gospels, roughly that's biographies of Jesus, virtually every person who rejected Jesus' claims to be God and Messiah, the Savior of the world, went away either sad or mad. 
First, I'm going to try to deal with today's sad ones. The longing, the having given up on Christianity ones. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel of Christ for today's mad ones, the angry ones. I can't tell you how much it bugs me that there exists such a group as the one called Fundamentalists Anonymous. But there is such a self-help group. If there's any kind of Christian recovery group, I want it to be Liberal Protestants Anonymous, or Recovering Neo-Orthodox Protestants, or Liberation Theology Advocates Anonymous, or Open Theism Recovery Group, you get the idea. For all of its faults, American fundamentalism at least is Christianity of a sort. Yet still, to be perfectly honest, I really can understand why such a group as Fundamentalists Anonymous exists. Maybe you can too. Many of these people about whom or to whom I want to speak tonight are casualties of Bible-believing churches. Some seem to be able to remain in this form of Christianity for years and years, but certainly not all. For some reasons, reasons which I think are very specifiable, more people than we would like to think leave fundamentalist Christianity. I think the same dynamic is often the case with people who belong to what are called the holiness bodies, Wesleyan Christianity. Some are sad about it, some are angry about it. You might say, well, my church is certainly not fundamentalist. I think mine is part of what Newsweek and Time call mainline churches. If that is the case, probably not much that I have to say tonight will be very helpful to you. I'm not going to be talking much about mainline Protestant churches liberal Lutheran, liberal Presbyterian, Episcopal, for the simple reason that for most of them there isn't enough theology left to make people either sad or mad. Make them convinced that they have to leave or their hearts will break. Or makes them leave because if they don't, they fear they, fear they will uncork on some shepherd or sheep and get arrested for it. The reason for this is, I think, a relatively simple one. There just isn't enough substantial theology in most mainline Protestant churches to upset anybody. There isn't much of anything left in mainline Protestant sermons or curricula, except maybe lessons in ethics, perhaps new opportunities for social service. As one wag put it, the trouble with theology today is that there isn't any. Many of us have met and talked with the sad alumni of Christianity. And many of us have also met and talked with, with some of the mad alumni of Christianity. The venue may vary, but most of us know or have met men and women who tell us that Christianity once was a part of their life in years past, but that they no longer consciously identify with Jesus Christ in his claim to be God and Savior. Every pastor runs into these people. So do lay people. It seems to go with the territory these days. You and I know them, meet them. You might be one of them. I've run into it in decades of working on the college campus, first with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, later as a professor. In those roles, it has been, I think, for whatever reasons, easier for students to tell me the truth. I think they have said things to me that they were afraid to tell their pastors or priests. I think they have said things to me that uh, were easier to tell a professor uh, such as you once believed that Jesus was your sin-bearing Savior, but that you no longer believe that, or that you wish you could still believe in Jesus, 
but it's just intellectually impossible. If you're a Christian pastor or layman, you probably have more than once heard the same thing from friends or acquaintances. In our day, there's so many of these people that it's hard not to come into contact with them. There are thousands of them. First, a few words about the sad alumni. Many of these people were broken by the church. I know that sounds harsh. As Christians, it's bothersome to hear words like that. But for many people, this is how they really see what has happened to them. Now, almost certainly, many of us have also had contact with people who have struggled for their whole lives with being deeply upset psychologically. The church, for whatever reasons, draws people who the professionals recognize as bipolar or wrestling up against what they call clinical depression or whose guilt is so great that they are inwardly immobilized, people who are so frightened that just coping day by day is truly heroic. But it's not about any of these people that I'll be speaking tonight. I'm not competent to do so. It seems to me that such people deserve all of the care and empathy that we can muster. But again, it's not about such people that I'm speaking tonight. By the sad alumni of the Christian faith, I mean the hundreds and hundreds whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they were helped to move from unbelief or from a suffocating moralism into real saving faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the preaching of God's law and then heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. Jesus, the God-man who met the law's demands for them, died for their sin, died to save them, died to give them eternal life. They heard the wonderful message of God's grace in the cross and in the death of Jesus Christ. They heard the astonishing news that God in Jesus Christ died for them, died so that they can be and are freely forgiven based solely on his atoning death. They heard that Christ's blood redeems sinners, buys us out of our self-chosen enslavement. They came to believe that Christianity is not so much about what is in our hearts as much as it is about what's in God's heart. And this proven by Christ's vicarious and atoning death for them and his resurrection three days later, all for their sin. They came to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation for free and forever. But something happened after that, something that broke them. And in general, I think what happened is nameable, at least in many cases. In my Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we would speak of it as the confusion of law and gospel. Dr. Charles Mansky, the founding president of Christ College Irvine, used to teach a course in Christianity for freshmen. In that course, he characterized the various churches of Western Christendom this way. Rome, law. Lutheran, law, gospel. Wesleyan Evangelical, law, gospel, law. I think Dr. Mansky was definitely on to something here, and I think it is that third point that results in a lot of sad alumni of Christianity. Now, if you're Lutheran or Reformed, we too have a category that if not done carefully and well, will turn out just as destructive as any Wesleyan, Pentecostal, or Nazarene preaching. I'm referring, of course, to the third use of the law. In Lutheran theology, the content of this third use of the law is spelled out in a section of our Book of Concord, specifically in what we call the Formula of Concord. 
If you're Reformed, you will recognize this category immediately. Recognize it as tracing back to Calvin himself. Two, if I'm correct in what Calvinist Christians call the three forms of unity, the canons of the Synod of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Confession. If I'm wrong on this one, not being Reformed, I apologize for an inaccurate characterization of your position. What do we Reformation folk mean by the third use of the law? It claims to be primarily informative, informative for the Christian, and something which fleshes out what is the will of God for me as a Christian day by day. What about the law thundering to us that we are deeply fallen, unable to fix our problem, that we're guilty before a holy God and his holy law, and unless God does something one-sidedly to rescue us, we're without hope, and certainly condemned. That we folk from the Reformation call the second use of the law, the theological use. Luther thought this was the major function of the law in all of the Bible, designed to drive us to despair of our character, our works, our uh, anything, and to drive us to Jesus Christ as the atoning, dying lamb substitute for our sin, mine and yours. At any rate, if we Reformation people do the third use of the law badly, we get very close to the infamous application section of the sermon, so common in Wesley, Wesleyan and evangelical preaching. And if we do it badly, the sensitive Christian believer can be driven to a slavery as bad as any, any slavery done to them by a totalitarian dictator. If the Ten Commandments were not impossible enough, the preaching of Christian behavior of Christian ethics, of Christian living, can drive a Christian into despairing unbelief. Not happy unbelief, tragic, despairing, sad unbelief. It's not unlike the unhappy Christian equivalent of Jack Mormons, those who finally admit to themselves and others that they can't live up to the demands of this non-Christian cult's laws and excuse themselves from the whole shebang. A diet of this stuff from pulpit, from curriculum, from a Christian reading list can do a work on a Christian, at least over the long haul, that is faith-destroying. You might be in just that position this evening. Many of us have friends whose story is not a far cry from this. We all regularly rub shoulders with such alumni of the Christian faith, sad that the gospel of Christ didn't for them at least, deliver the goods. It didn't work. In a Christian context, the mechanism of this can be, I think, a fairly simple one. You come to believe that you've been justified freely because of Christ's cross and blood. Freely, for the sake of Jesus' death and innocent sufferings, God has forgiven your sin, adopted you as a son or daughter, reconciled you to himself, given you the Holy Spirit, and so on. Scripture promises these things. Verses like, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, seem now, at first read, to finally be possible, now that you're equipped for it. Or you hear St. Paul as he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same thing. You realize that you might have had some excuse for failure when you were a pagan, but that's over. Now you've been made a part of God's family, have become a recipient of a thousand of his free gifts, and then the unexpected. Sin continues to be a part of my life. 
stubbornly won't allow me to eliminate it the way I expected. Continuing sin on my part seems to be just evidence that I'm not really a believer at all. If I were really a believer, this thing would work. And we start to imagine that we need to be born again again. And often the counsel from non-Reformation churches is that this intuition of ours is true. Try going again to some evangelistic meeting. Accept Christ again. Surrender your will to his again. Sign the card. When the pastor gives the altar call, walk the aisle again. Maybe it didn't take the first time, but it will the second, and so forth. How do I know this one from the inside? You might be able to tell that I don't have to search for words, and you're right. I was brought up in a pietistic Norwegian Lutheran church. For those of you who haven't heard the term pietistic or pietism, it began with certain Lutherans, Arndt and Spainer and others, who wanted a more living Christianity than seemed to be taught and encouraged in their Lutheran parishes in Germany. But it was as close as Lutherans in Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and America ever came to being just like Teutonic or Scandinavian outposts of Biola or Wheaton College. The Reformation emphasis on Christ outside of us, dying for us, and on the justification of sinners gratis was de-emphasized. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were de-emphasized. Instead, the emphasis shifted to the individual's experience of conversion and to the victorious life of the true Christian day by day. If you're interested in this, one of the early first issues of Christian history was devoted to the issue of pietism. It's a far more positive presentation of it than I would give. If you're interested in what I think is a better critical evaluation of it, they are the lectures by Dr. Ron Feuerhahn uh, of the St. Louis uh, Missouri Synod Seminary, and I think his is much more realistic about what this stuff is and the problems it causes. Uh, see me at the break if you want to know. They're called the Peeper Lectures, and that was in vol his is in Volume 3, Pietism and Lutheranism. My church's pietism made an agnostic of me by the time I was a senior in high school. The evangelical parish of your youth might have had the same result in your case. How so? Well, imagine a Sunday school curriculum filled with Bible stories designed to teach a moral point with every lesson. Beware Sunday school curricula. That stuff is dangerous to children. One of the happiest days of my life was the morning when standing in the church narthex my wonderful father delivered me out of Sunday school forever. He had, with a single stroke, delivered me out of the hands of gray-haired women trying to make me more moral using Bible stories to do it. It was like escape from prison. It again made my life happier. It was not the last time by any measure either. But really it wasn't the fault of those gray-haired Sunday school teachers either. It was the theology they were assigned to teach. It was the curriculum, the content of the lessons that they were assigned to teach the kids. Such Sunday school material should never have been allowed to make it into our parish. Now, even though I'm not Reformed and I don't speak Reformed very well, let me see if I can use a couple of categories from the Heidelberg Catechism to guess how you might have had the same dynamic in its problems, at least if it's executed badly. Think of the paradigm guilt, grace, and gratitude. 
Don't you have the same sort of problems we Lutherans had with pietism, at least where the paradigm is, is executed badly? If I'm elect and regenerate, why is it that my gratitude is so small, so lacking on a daily basis? The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Or, if I really were elect, my life would certainly reflect that fact more than it does. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. Maybe I'm not really elect. Because the peace, the joy, the confidence, Paul says, the Christian is to have, and that other Reformed believers seem to talk about, I don't have. I'd be lying if I said I did. Maybe I never was part of the elect, and I'm still not. For those of you who are Wesleyans, you're in this mess up to your eyeballs. Wesley's charge to his pastors was very clear. They were called to, one, evangelize pagans, something for which Wesley gets an A in my book, and two, to urge parishioners on to Christian perfection, something for which Wesley would get an F from me, uh, especially the way he executed it. Sunday after Sunday of exhortation, that is, law. If it's of any comfort to you Wesleyans, you can blame us Lutherans for a lot of this stuff. We Lutherans try to blame the Strasbourg Reformed for, the Luth for Lutheran pietism, but I'm not so sure we didn't do it all on our own steam. Through Nicholas von Zinzendorf at Herrenhut and Peter Böhler, we Lutherans bequeathed a lot of this mess of ours to Wesley. I wish I could say it all came from Wesley's reading of the Church Fathers, from reading William Law and others like Law, but I can't. In fact, it was we Lutherans who managed to corrupt all sorts of denominations with this junk. Not just our own Lutheran churches, but all sorts of free churches, the Brothers Wesley, Cotton Mather in the New World, uh, I can't answer for Jonathan Edwards. He is a total mystery to me. Um, this stuff knew and knows almost no bounds. And almost all of it traces to Lutheran Germany in an earlier century. If this stuff was done to you in some Protestantish church, I apologize to you. We thought Lutherans might just have been the ones who bequeathed to your denomination, to your pastors, seminary profs, this stuff. If we did, I apologize. Now, for our purposes this evening, the upshot is always the same. Broken ex-Christians who finally despaired of ever being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. <clears throat> so they did what is really a sane thing to do. They left. The way it looks to them is that the message of Christianity broke them on the rack. To put it bluntly, it feels better to have some earthly happiness as a pagan and then be damned than it feels to be trying every day as a Christian to do something that is one continuous failure and then be damned anyway. Trust me on this one. This is how things look. Now, it seems to me that the key question here is a very basic one. Can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian, failing as he or she is in living the Christian life? Or not? I hope that most of us would say that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to save a sinner. All by itself, just Christ's blood, nude faith in it, sola fide, faith without works, a righteousness from God apart from law, a cross by which God justifies wicked people. That is me and you too. So far, so good, right? But is the blood of Christ enough to save a still sinful Christian, or isn't it? 
Does the gospel still apply even if you are a Christian, or doesn't it? It seems to me, one, that the category sinner still applies to me, two, that the category sinner still applies to you, and three, that the category sinner still applies to all Christians. If you're a Wesleyan and have reached perfection, what I have to say here doesn't, of course, apply to you. We'll give you your money back as you leave. But for the rest of us, it seems that what Luther said of the Christian being simultaneously sinful, yet justified before the holy God, is critical. Is what Luther said biblical or isn't it? Is it biblical to say that a Christian is simul justus et peccator or no? Are we Christians saved the same way we were when we were baptized into Christ or when we came to acknowledge Christ's shed blood and his righteousness as all we had in the face of God's holy law? That all of our supposed virtues, Christian or pagan, were just like so many old menstrual garments, to use the biblical phrase? But that God imputes to those who trust Christ's cross the true righteousness of Christ himself? We're pretty sure that unbelievers who come to believe this are instantly justified in God's sight, declared as if innocent, adopted as sons or daughters, forgiven for all sin, given eternal life, etc. But are Christians still saved that freely? Or are we not? We're pretty clear that imputed righteousness saves sinners. But can the imputed righteousness of Christ save a Christian? And can it save him or her all by itself or no? I think the way we answer this question determines whether we have anything at all to say to the sad alumni of Christianity. We Lutheran pastors haven't done a great job of getting across the central nature of righteousness by imputation alone. I hope you've done a better job of it than we have. Decades ago, a gigantic survey of our clergy and laity across synodical lines, ask somebody else what a synod is, across synodical lines showed um, that we Lutheran pastors hadn't even convinced our own members of the sufficiency of Christ's cross and blood and death. I mean Lutheran members who might never have sneaked out to attend some revival, might never have spent five minutes watching crazy Trinity broadcasting. The book was called A Study of Generations, and 75% of the laity gave perfect Roman Catholic answers to the questions. When you die, are you sure you will enter heaven? Answer, I hope so. If you do get into heaven, how will you get in? Well, I was president of the congregation four times, my wife and I tried to tithe. For 20 years, we sang in the choir till our voices just couldn't do it anymore. We both taught Sunday school for years. Perfect Roman Catholic answers. And this survey was decades ago. What the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will probably get in like that. We failures in living the Christian life, as described in the Bible, will probably say something like, you mean it really was that simple? Just Christ's cross and blood? Just his righteousness imputed to my account as if it were mine? You've got to be kidding. And all of heaven is ours just because of what was done by Jesus outside of me, not in me, on the cross, not in my heart. 
Not in my Christian living, not in my ethics and my behavior, well, I'll be damned. (laughs) But of course, that's the real point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, as your substitute, you won't be damned. No believer in Jesus will be. Not a single one. As C.S. Lewis put it, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the eschaton. There are going to be people there that we just don't imagine will be there. Think of the non-Israelite that Lewis purposely put in heaven at the end of the last battle. Boy, did that ever get the goat of some Christians. And then he tells him why. uh, Aslan, the lion, says to him, I suppose you're wondering why you're here. And then he tells him why. Uh, There are going to be in heaven believers in Jesus who never darkened the door of a church. Now, that's no encouragement not to intend, not to be baptized, and not to receive the Lord's Supper. It's just saying that faith in Jesus saves. Saves by itself, nude, apart from works. There are going to be scads of Roman Catholics, people who never listened, not really, to the theology preached by their priests, just believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, no matter what their priest was preaching. People of all sorts who just believed in Jesus and his blood shed for their sin as complete payment. There are going to be call girls, there are going to be drug dealers, maybe even a couple of lawyers, though I doubt it. There are going to be members of the cults who never got what the cult leader was teaching, but trusted in Jesus' blood and cross, and that it was for their sin and for their hatred of God and for their wickedness. Surprises. Lots of surprises. It bugs me to say it, but there might even be an IRS employee, maybe a congressman or a congresswoman. Everybody has some class of people they don't really want to die as believers in Jesus. Those are mine. But to put it closer to home, there might even be a theologian or two who believed in Jesus. Bet the blue chips on the blood of Jesus and nothing else? Nothing in addition to that blood? There might even be a despicable leftist socialist college professor or two. Academics who daily sold out the wonderful American Constitution and instead filled their students' heads with status drivel and mush. In heaven we will meet cowards, scum, bottom of the barrel, reprehensibles, jerks, deadbeat dads, murderers, all sorts of rabble. And they died believing in Jesus and his blood as their only hope. Ask yourself, is sola fide true or is sola fide not true in the case of failing Christians? Is Paul's letter to the Galatians true or no? And if Galatians is true, and it most certainly is, but an apologia for that is not our subject, Can a failing Christian be saved simply by the cross and blood of Christ? Can he or she not be so saved by by Christ's shed blood alone? If you answer yes, he or she can. That's the message that's gotten lost on most alumni, most Jack Christians, at least the ones I've met. How many times the law has already done its work on them? Boy, has it ever done its work on them. They need more law like they need a hole in the head. The law was and is killing them. Now, true, Paul says the law kills. He writes as if that's what the law is for. The law is designed to crush, to crush human pride and supposed self-sufficiency toward God. It is intended to kill, designed to kill. Um, The biblical connection is law slash sin. What gives sin its power is the law. 
And more so, it looks like the law is designed to make the problem even worse. It is to be gasoline on an already blazing fire. Want to have sin run out of control? Go to a church in which the law is preached, then the law is preached again, and more stringently and deeply, and then the law is preached even more. You'll create sin. Think of John Lithgow's portrayal years ago of a law-preaching pastor in the film Footloose. Didn't you just cringe? I mean, even if you're a Southern Baptist, you had to cringe at that character. Drawing the Christian line in the sand at the possibility of a high school dance? Lithgow couldn't listen to his daughter, even if hearing her would have instantly resulted in world peace. Man, was he righteous. In Footloose, Lithgow's wife should have been the pastor. Don't quote me. I could be thrown out of the Missouri Synod for even joking about such a thing. You Missouri Synod Lutherans, that's a joke. Chill out. Or as Phil Hendry says in the ad, it wouldn't hurt you to laugh. You non-Lutherans, all of this is an inside joke. Ask your Lutheran friends later why that's a joke in our circles. My point is that the whole film, Footloose, was Jesusless. No cross, no atonement, nothing of Christianity, really. Same as chariots of fire. Completely Christless. Completely gospelless. Now back to the point. For many of the Jack Christians we've met, the law is all their ears have ever heard. For them, the gospel often got lost in a whole bunch of Christian life preaching, and it did them in. So they left. And down deep, there's a sadness in such people that defies description. If you and I don't understand that, we should. They were crestfallen, so great their hopes, so devastating the failure. C.F.W. Walther, um, early guy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, said that as soon as the law has done its crushing work, the gospel is to be instantly preached or said to such a man or woman. Instantly. Walter said that in the very moment that the pastor senses that the law has done its killing work, he is to placard Christ and his cross and his blood to the trembling, the despairing, and the broken. Be of good cheer, my son. Your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he, when he comes, will neither break the bruised reed nor quench the smoldering wick. When you turn, return, remember me. I tell you this day you shall be with me in paradise. It's finished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. God made him to be sin who himself knew no sin. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith in Jesus, not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And to the man who does not work, but trusts the one who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as if it were righteousness. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Knowing a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Secondly, now, let's talk about the ones who are not sad but mad. It's not all that uncommon. I find these angry ones have usually not switched from Christianity to another religion, nor have I found that they switched from one Christian denomination to another. Instead, I find that they are angry at any and all religions and anyone who represents any religious position, but especially Christianity. And that's natural. After all, it was Christianity as they see it that used them up and threw them away. I suppose the most visible examples of this would be men like the late comedian Sam Kinison and ex-Roman Catholic George Carlin. You may and probably do know better contemporary examples than I know. All of us are in the vicinity of people like this at one time or another, maybe know a few of them as friends, or have at least met two or three in passing. Maybe you are one of them. Why do I say that? Because such people are, as I said, not all that uncommon these days. Now, I certainly can't this evening exhaust the dynamic involved in such people. Again, I'm no clinical psychologist. But I think a lot of the mad alumni also have, an, also have a nameable history, just as the sad alumni have one. People like this often speak as if Christianity baited and switched them, just like a used car salesman baits and switches a young couple at a car lot. Christians promised them a new life in Christ in such a way that it was going to be a life of victory, God's designed route to earthly happiness, a new divine power that would solve the problems obsessing them. Then, when the promises didn't seem to work the way they were supposed to, the church put it right back on these believers that they were somehow not doing it right. They weren't reading their Bible enough. They weren't praying enough or praying right. They weren't attending enough church meetings. They weren't making right use of the fellowship. You name the prescription. You fill in the blanks any way you want to. Some pastor or lay layman told them that Christianity was failing them because they weren't doing it right. And often these believers took that counsel to heart and set themselves to trying to do it better or do it right, so that it would work. But again, Christianity seemed not to deliver on its promises. It didn't work. As they see it, they gave it every shot, and Christianity failed to deliver. And then to boot, they were called guilty for not doing it right. These people feel not just disappointed, they feel betrayed, they feel conned, they feel scammed, and they are deeply angry about it. Or take another example. Those who heard much of Christ and his saving blood and cross in an evangelistic meeting, they became Christians. Then they heard very little of that wonderful message in the week-by-week -week pulpit ministry of their congregation. Instead, they heard recipes as to how to conquer sin over and over and over. Or how to have a more intimate marriage. Or how to raise drug-free kids. Fill it in any way you want. It's law. See, these people often gave up on Christianity, and they are angry, really angry about it. And I don't blame them, really. Nor should you. The church has an obligation to preach the gospel to people on a weekly basis. And deep down, they somehow knew that. But if that isn't what happens, they react. I would, too. After all, what does the church have for a man, a woman, a child, other than Christ and his work on their behalf? Not much not compared to the gospel of Christ preached as crucified for them and for their sin, Christ risen from the dead for their justification, 
not compared to being absolved, not compared to eating the body of Christ given into death for their sin, drinking the blood of Christ shed for their sin. Is there anything we can do that is of genuine help to such angry alumni of Christianity? I think so. And the answer I'm about to give you comes from a guy close to one of those angry ones. From whom? From Sam Kinison's brother. One night, I happened to be watching one of those 60 Minutes type shows, and it was an, inter an interview with Kinison's brother. After Sam was in an auto accident on a lonely highway near Las Vegas, he lay dying. His brother was cradling Sam's head in his arms as Sam was dying. The interviewer on this 60 Minutes show asked Sam's brother about Sam's hatred of Christ. And his brother looked at the interviewer and said, What? You think that Sam wasn't a Christian believer? You're wrong. Sam died as a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll see Sam in heaven, definitely. Sam was never angry with Jesus. He was angry at the church. And I jumped out of my chair and I yelled, that's it. There it is. There's the answer from Sam Kinison's brother. What did I mean, that's it? We can respond to the angry and say something like, oh, I see. You're not angry at Jesus Christ. You're angry at the church. Boy, join the club. So am I. And so are a whole bunch of other Christians. Now here, if I had time, I would digress on how Christians angry with Christ will be saved by his cross too. But it isn't the subject for tonight. Now this response takes more than a few minutes of thought on our part. That is, am I really ready to say such a thing? And that's not an easy question. For many of us, especially us clergy, this question can be really difficult. Why? Because there's a predictable psychological profile of the clergy including our closer relationship with our mothers than it was with our fathers. For most of us pastors, the link between Jesus and the church, a mother symbol, is so tight, so identical, that to be angry with mother church is the same as rejecting Jesus. It isn't. But I'm recommending, at least in conversation with the angry, that we, all of us, identify with the anger of these people at the church, and that we say... Well, of course you're angry with what it did to you. It'd be insane not to be angry at it. I just misunderstood. I thought you had dismissed Christ. Thanks for clarifying. Now, again, I know this is tough stuff. It raises questions in us that are not easy ones, particularly for us pastors who were closer to mom than we were to dad. And unfortunately, that's a very high percentage of us. Uh, we're also first sons, 85 to 95% of us. But I recommend that we take the hit. It's not unlike the case with something like the Crusades or the Inquisition. I think most of us don't want to defend everything the church has done in the past. At least I hope we don't. And believe me, the angry alumni are listening closely to see whether we're going to defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we do not defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we immediately cop to horrendous things done by the church. For those of you who are Lutheran, this is not the time to catechize this guy into the finer points of Luther's two kingdoms theory. Now, let me illustrate with a couple of particularly embarrassing examples from my own church's history. Believe me, you've got parallels in your church, too, if you have one, no matter which one it is. One of the lowest points in Lutheran church history has to do with the peasants' revolt and with the persecution of the Anabaptists in the 16th century. 
The peasants' revolt deeply frightened Luther. Luther very much feared anarchy as the worst of possibilities. In a letter to the German princes, Luther ordered them to use the sword and to slash and slay anyone who was out on the streets behaving like a revolutionary. He quickly wrote a letter that appealed to the princes to ignore his first letter, but it was too late. The peasants, thinking that Luther was backing them, were astounded when they learned that Luther had ordered the princes to cut, slash, and kill them. They felt totally betrayed. A real dark chapter in my church's history. In a similar way, to the degree to which Anabaptist Christians represented any kind of spirit-given ecclesiastical anarchy, one that had no place for order, Luther unleashed on them too. Lutherans took part in baptizing such people by immersion for 10 minutes. Reformed, Reformed and Roman Catholics went along with us in this, but right now I'm just speaking about us. Reprehensible? You bet. Do I want to defend such executions to one of those angry at the... Not a chance. Hated as I might, I need to agree with the person with whom I'm speaking. Same with some of the anti-Semitic things Luther wrote later on in his life. I said that I recommend that we cop church is done. We might be tempted to start trying to balance the charges. Mention the wonderful things the church has sometimes done. Um, I recommend against that too. At least in an apologetics conversation. Later we can speak about a book like Al Schmidt's uh, late book that catalogs just how the Western world's every corner was affected to the good by historic Christianity, but not at this time. Just let them fire away. But since hearing Kinnison's brother, I don't want to leave the matter there. You and I copying to the evil done by the church still leaves the angry one satisfied, sort of justified in his antichristic state, and still miles from the gospel. If the law has done its work on him, I want next to talk to this guy about the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus' claims, and if I can, particularly about Jesus' claims regarding what he was going to do for sinners, including me and him, on the cross. Now, you Lutheran pastors, don't talk to me at this point about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about sacraments. This kind of guy isn't going to come to your inquirer's class to learn about anything, including those. He's too angry. Same for you Reformed pastors. This is not the time to start talking to this guy about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about the finer points of predestination. He isn't going to come to your inquirer's class. He's too angry. So what am I going to do? I'm going to talk about the gospel as if it can be believed in totally apart from the church. You say to me, Rosenblatt, that isn't how Scripture presents the church. I answer, I know. But first things first. This guy needs Christ. Christ as priest. Christ as having bled for his sin. Christ as giving him eternal life for free. And in his mind, the church is what is keeping him or her away from Christ. If he comes to trust Christ and Christ's sin-bearing death, the guy might later on deal with passages about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But not now. To this guy, the church and its behavior are the scandal on, the scandal. The real scandal, according to Paul, is that we are sinners under condemnation and cannot do anything to make things right with the holy God. The true scandalon in the New Testament is that someone else is going to have to satisfy God's justice for us because we are unable and unwilling to do it. 
To put it another way, we sinners are in need of a divine mediator. And without a divine mediator, we are doomed. Scripture says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the judgment, the law of God could justly declare us condemned. But the gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it on the cross for free for every one of us. If your friend can see for just a moment that the truth of the gospel does not turn on Christ's church, but only on Christ's resurrection from the dead, it might be the first time he's ever thought such a thought. Will he bend his knee to Christ as his lamb and substitute? Who knows? But you will have done him or her a great service. Would that all people who are angry agnostics or atheists were clear that their animosity toward the church for giving them nothing but moralism as soon as they became Christians is really understandable. We would have that same reaction. Believe it or not, that's progress. I've sometimes said to people who reject Christ and his death for their sin, well, you are one of the few I've met who has really rejected the Christian gospel for the right reasons. And congratulations for that. There aren't many of you. But I recommend you keep thinking about it and keep asking the question, did, Je- did Jesus really rise from the dead the third day or didn't he? Because if he was raised the third day, that is the best reason in the world, in the world to believe that he can make good on his claim that his death was a death for your sin and my sin and that his cross and blood will be enough for anyone who dies still a sinner. Me? You too. Lastly, we might be surprised to find that this guy or this woman is a Christian. He's just vowed never to let a church do what's been done to him ever, ever again. Do you know a church that won't do that to him again? Don't answer too quickly. There are not a lot of these, no matter what the label on the door and no matter how glitzy. Most of today's churches will just re-inflame his anger, giving him law, gospel, law. Find one for him instead that will speak to him of Christ after he's a believer. And if you don't know one, then tell him that. At least it's honest. Fantastic lecture. Now, continuing with our encore broadcasts, of Dr. Rosenblatt's lectures for uh, this Reformation Day, 2011. Uh, the chapel sermon that he delivered not too long ago entitled Christianity in Five Verses. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. I begin with a true story, a story of something of which I was a part as a pastor here in Orange County. I was serving as an interim pastor at a non-LCMS Lutheran parish out on El Toro Road years ago. An interim pastor is a temp, called to hold things together as best he can while the congregation goes through what has become the overly long process of issuing a call to a pastor. It's a holding things together with bailing wire and bubble gum. One Sunday, we were talking in the adult class about the call to every Christian to witness to others about the gospel, to tell the story. Before people left that Sunday morning, I gave them an assignment, 
for the following Sunday. The setup I gave them was this. Imagine a situation where a close friend or friends ask you what Christianity was, what it was about. I specified for them conditions that were as good as it gets. A close friendship with him or them over many, many years, kids who played together each week, a situation where it was normal to phone one another every week about this, that, and the other thing. Maybe you vacationed together as families every summer. Your friends saw you as honest, intelligent, of goodwill, and so forth. He or they respected you in every way and without reservation. He or they, as Luther said, always put the best construction on everything that you do. So, the assignment was to take a piece of paper and write down the answer to their question, what is Christianity? Then bring that paper back with you next Sunday. Got it? The following Sunday, I was looking at 50 bright Lutheran Christians who had attempted to set the basics down on paper and realized they couldn't do it. 50 or so blank pages. Now, what I want to do with you in just a few short minutes is something so basic, so fundamental, that it's almost embarrassing to say the words. And even those words are not mine, really. I stole them. From whom? From C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. His subject was that God delights in us whom he put into Christ. It was he, as an Englishman, remember, you don't embarrass anybody, who said that he blushed to even say the words, but he was going to defend that proposition anyway. God delights in his children adopted in Jesus. What I want to do this morning, embarrassingly, blushingly simple as it sounds, is walk us all through the basic Christian message in five verses. I picked five verses from my acquaintance with the Navigators and, to a certain extent, from confirmation memorization. But the same thing could be done with a different half-dozen verses as well as these and another half-dozen different verses after that. How? Well, if you have what's called a study Bible, go to the ones I'm going to use and use your study Bible. It, would, it will supply you parallel verses everywhere in the Bible. Using a study Bible this way is a skill much worth having if you've never done it before. Or use your doctrine textbook. Doctors Mueller and Moss chose verses even better than our standard three-volume dogmatics by Franz Pieper. Why do this anyway? Well, we've all got to have some kind of organization or map telling the story. Plus, religious discussions have a way of wandering all over the map. All too often we never get through the story because we or our curious friends follow Alice down various and sundry rabbit holes and go completely off the rails. So, what's the subject of each verse, you ask? One, that all children of Adam and Eve, primarily me, you, have sinned. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily first, then forever in hell. Three, that Jesus Christ paid that penalty we've accrued by his death on the cross for each and every one of us. Four, 
that justification before God is pure gift as opposed to a matter of our works. And five, the assurance that one really is justified before God now and then forever. Two caveats. This is not mechanical, thinking something like Campus Crusades for Spiritual Laws. There will be men or women with whom you are talking who have so heard the law that you can completely skip the first two sets of verses. They're already so crushed, so broken by the law, that you doing any more of the law is totally unnecessary. So skip to the verses about, skip the verses about the law stuff. Go to Christ, his death, what his death did, what justification is. Why? Because your hearer has already gotten the bad news, but still is in need of you explicating the good news. Know beforehand that you are often going to be asked how you know this gospel is true, not helpful, true. And for that, I recommend our apologetics course here, no matter whether it's from me or from Dr. Moss or from Dr. Francisco, we're all doing the same sort of thing. So. Let's look quickly at each of the verses, shall we? First, that we, I first, then only the person to whom I'm talking, are sinners, are, are sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is addressed to rebels who hate their creator. That's me and you. The classic text is, of course, the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But there are New Testament parallels as well. For example, St. Paul's parallel in the first half of Romans chapter 3. Dark, dark, dark stuff. And it's about you and it's about me. This is, of course, not very popular. As Lewis said in his The Case for Christianity, the Christian story begins with bad news. Jesus said that it is only those who are sick and know it who have the need to go looking for a physician. Those who imagine that they are well and not sick unto death will ignore a physician. And I recommend that when we talk about sin, we use ourselves as illustrations. Lord knows there's plenty of raw material. Not using the sin of those to whom we're talking. Do it autobiographically. Your hearer will connect the dots between us all, you yourself, and himself or herself without your help. So I recommend that we use a lot of I rather than a lot of you when we try to get sin across in a secularized generation. And unfortunately, in our therapeutic culture, you and I probably have to contrast feeling guilty with being genuinely guilty. The Bible message is very concerned with the latter and not very much with the former. I can use the Ten Commandments to illustrate my failure, primarily the first, read Luther's Catechism, um, and again, not his or her uh, failure, mine, in the face of God's law. And I've heard some people do this same thing using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our primary problem is not that we feel guilty, at least according to the scriptures, it's that we are guilty. The key thing is that we get across that we are all already doomed, already face a completely holy and righteous judge, and are presently under his righteous condemnation. And the final will not be graded on the curve. There are only two grades, 100% and zero. And the standard for the judgment is his law. 
And that law in the Bible checkmates us. Each of us in his or her cell on the Green Mile and the sentence of condemnation already pronounced. The carrying out of the judge's sentence of death is all we can expect. Unless there is some intervener greater than we, someone who is not sick unto death, some rescuer champion greater than we. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily death, then forever death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This sin-death law linkage in the Bible is a matter of the entire race's sin as compared with my personal death, my personal sin. But regardless, it all comes down to the same thing anyway. I am a willing member of a fallen and sinful race, the one we call human. So are you. And so is your hearer. Gentile or Jew, it makes no difference. Rosenblatt has willingly, proudly, happily, and on a daily basis piled up against himself God's altogether righteous wrath, his retributive justice. If I say I just want God at the judgment to give me what I deserve, he will. If I see myself as somehow above needing mercy or grace, if I just want justice or fairness, God will give me exactly what I've said I want. Now, whether when I get justice, it is to my joy or to my terror is another question. Third, that Christ in his death on the cross paid the penalty I and you too owe. Romans 5.8 But God evidences his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already seen that we deserve nothing but execution and condemnation forever, not just for our sins daily, but for the sin we inherited from Adam. And if one doesn't get us, the other will. We fare badly on both counts. But amazingly, that God who is perfectly holy and just, once in human time, that is during the days of Caesar Augustus, became one of us, took our place and later dealt out his justice on himself instead of on us. This is Christianity, folks. Christianity is not about moral improvement, transformation, community, happiness, or any of the rest of that stuff. It's about the offended king giving his life and blood in order to rescue those who hate him. That's you and me. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. St. Paul, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. St. Peter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the tree. God was under no obligation whatever to do any of this, but he did it anyway. If you are going to some claimed Christian church and this is not the essence, the center of what is communicated to you every single Sunday, my advice to you is get out of there. Switch churches. If this amazing announcement of what God did for you one afternoon 2,000 years ago isn't defining, isn't central, isn't the message 13 ways from Friday, the old Lutheran fathers would probably say it's not really a church you're attending. It's some kind of weekly gathering, but a church it ain't. And I don't care how often the worship leader uses the name of Jesus either. 
If it isn't clearly about the Jesus who bled, died, reconciled God to you, propitiated God's own wrath for you, adopted you as his child by the blood of his cross, where God richly and daily forgives your sin on the basis of Jesus' blood and death, the worship leader's Jesus ain't the Jesus of the New Testament. Christianity is not about moral improvement, it's about substitution, the innocent one dying for the guilty ones. Correlatively, Christianity is not primarily about recipes for healthy relationships, better parenting, wiser dating, more intimate marriages, better financial responsibilities, or any of that. By nature, I again and again return to my own perceived needs as a dog returns to its vomit. And so do you, I'll bet. And we need a pastor to placard before our eyes, Jesus is dying, to preach into our earballs, Jesus dying for us, the good news of what Jesus' death did. Preach to us what we do not incline to, the depth of our sin, and that somehow the Jesus of the New Testament text is even greater than that sin, and that he freely laid down his life for it, somehow conquered our death for us by dying in our place. Christianity isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his identity and his work for us. Our only part is as beggar recipients of the overspill of who he was and what his cross did for us. It's about Jesus' death somehow putting us right with God. Very simply, Jesus and his substitutionary dying solved my real problem, sin. Regardless of the fact that I imagine my real problems are any of a thousand earthly problems. Scripture says I'm not even capable of knowing or diagnosing what my real problem is. I invent other problems, call them all my real problems. That's why I need Scripture to tell me again and again that my real problem is my hatred of God. But as I said, not just that. I need my pastor to be telling me that Jesus' blood and death have rescued me from the problem I didn't even know was my problem, and that it worked. How do I know that it worked? God, help me not by its making me somehow more moral or somehow better each day, or happier either, or experiencing Jesus, whatever that means, I don't have a clue. I'm to know that the cross actually did what Jesus said it did by the fact that the Father raised him out of the grave three days after you and I, by the way, killed him on that dark Friday afternoon. Four, that justification, or the more general salvation, is utter gift, does not involve any good works on your part or mine. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this one you know. For it's by grace that you're saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. The only righteousness that opens the gate of heaven for sinners is the righteousness that belonged to someone else. Christianity is basically about what the Father was doing for me and for you in the death of his only begotten Son one afternoon. What's our part in this deal? Our part is sin. And when we're talking to someone about grace, we're speaking of what the old fathers called the favor dei propter Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ. The law-obeying life he lived for us, but especially about his cross, blood, and death in our stead. Grace is the opposite of earning. The one is pure gift, the other is wages. We saw above that what you and I have earned is death. That's our deserved wages. But not so is the gift of free life. 
deliverance by another, so that in him we are part of God's gratuitous favor. God found a way to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The key Bible word here is imputation. Adam's sin was imputed to us, says the Bible. But then what we could never have seen coming, God imputed our sin to his son instead of to us. What Jesus was and did is imputed or reckoned to our accounts by the great judge. And what we are and have done, the judge imputes or reckons to Jesus' account. Our sin, the judge announces, was accounted, reckoned his instead of ours. Luther calls it the happy exchange. The righteous judge declares those in Christ as if righteous. Bang goes the gavel in the heavenly courtroom. And the judge's voice booms out, I declare you innocent. And I whisper to myself, but I'm guilty as all get out. Still, really, palpably. The judge hears me whispering. And he nails it. I am the judge of this courtroom, and my judgments are unassailable by anyone, including you, Rosenblatt. I declared you innocent, and mine is the final law of this land. You are reprieved now and forever. Your sentence is commuted as of now. When I reckon my son's innocence to you and declare you innocent, then I see you as if innocent. We aren't talking about morals here unless you mean the morals of my son. His morals and death are now counting for you, are the basis of my judgment, so there. Christianity is about imputed righteousness. His, Jesus' righteousness, imputed to you and to me as if ours. Correlatively, Christianity is not about our, our imagined improved morals and sanctification. Again, if you're at a church talking constantly about your improvement, go find another church. One that talks about your failure to improve and about Jesus' real righteousness imputed to you on your account. And who, a pastor who does it now, next week, next month, and forever. Why? Because your church is killing you. Five, the assurance that this, that we, I, you, are really justified before God. First John 5, 12 through 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Can an individual be sure of possession of this great present and future gift imputed to him or her? You bet. And the primary reasons we can know this are, one, that it has absolutely nothing to say about us and our moral state, but only about what Scripture says the death of Christ did that afternoon, and two, because looking to that and only to that as what justifies us before God means that God has himself put a wooden stake through the evil vampire heart of our looking at our supposed virtue as a way of earning our way in. It's admittedly, roughly, what the Bible means by the word repentance. He has repented you. It's 100% it's the righteousness of the Son and 0% any false righteousness of mine. The man or woman driven by God's Spirit to have given up on plan A, that is, I'll get six year better on the final and God will grade it on the curve, and has fled to plan B, 
God has justified sinners linked to Jesus by simple faith in Jesus' death, can know that he or she is in, not out. The God who never changes, Malachi 3.6, promises that to you. In Jesus, you're in, not out, now. And when you face the final judgment, what will you hear at the final judgment? A public recounting of all your sins? Nope. God long ago forgot them, and he promises he has. He can't even bring them back to his memory. You will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I tried to get this across in an address I gave here at Space Mountain that went public a while back. It was called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. We'll find ourselves in heaven. We'll probably say something like, you mean it was all that simple? Just Jesus and his cross and his blood? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Not one of us God-haters whom God has repented and faithed into Jesus' death, blood, and cross will ever be damned. Not a single one, ever. And then, as C.S. Lewis put it, the term is over and the holidays have begun. Forever, the great marriage feast of the Lamb in the body and feasting on the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. Welcome, child, welcome. Amen, amen, and amen.